get started. We'll dive right uh, in. Okay. Let me, let me open my. <laughs> let me open my beer. All right. There, there you go. go. Got, got to get that at the top. Dan's, Dan's got to get those. Everybody, yeah. open your beers at the same time yeah. so Dan can sink those. I got a glass, the, a glass yeah. of wine. Can check. Can Gormando. check. Uh. Can check. Exactly. <laughs> Roycast, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Kate. Hello. And Gabby. Hey, guys. And joining us this week for our discussion of Season 3, Episode 4, Lion in the Meadow, our first ever repeat guest on the Roycast, a freelance critic who's writing on film and television, regularly appears in the AV Club, Reverse Shot, and The Nation, our good friend Vikram Murthy. Hey, Vikram. How's it going? It's Welcome great. Back. Great to have um, you with us. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be back. This is nice. This is uh, good folks. Good folks talking succession. Yeah, Vic, you were our, our lifeboats guest, right? Yes. Yes, I was on the... Yeah, it's weird because I think I was on season one, episode four, and this is season three, episode four. So I'm in the four pocket. I it was episode uh, it was it was episode three, and you God, were actually... And you were actually our... <laughs> And you were actually our first guest because the uh, se- because episode two was solo and episode one we had with Brendan James we'd actually gone back and re-recorded. Uh, oh, so wow. cro- so chronologically, you were actually the first person we invited on, and you are now our first repeat guest. Oh, on I'm I'm happy just to be included. <laughs> we're big fans. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. I'm I'm big fans of you uh, of you folks. Like honestly, like uh, the podcast is great. Uh, I, I'm a regular listener. Oh, thanks, Vic. We're excited to uh, hear your thoughts on, you know, the last however many episodes um, it's been, so. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, uh, Spoiler alert, I'm a fan of the show. Uh, (laughs) That's it, you're out of here. I know. Oh, God, I fucked it up. Yeah, Yeah, we're getting back to the uh, the roots of the Roycast IP, you know, for the fans. (laughs) Exactly. Think of this as the uh, Ghostbusters afterlife of of Roycast episodes. Um, (laughs) That's awful. That's just a bad omen for the episode. I regret saying that. Uh, But, uh, okay, so so the episode we're here to talk about is uh, Season 3, Episode 4, Lying in the Middle. It's hard to believe we're already on Episode 4, and we've got nine episodes this season, so we're just about at the halfway mark here. Um, So we're going to break down a quick plot summary of this episode, talk and then start talking about the things that really interested us. So Lion in the Meadow, there are multiple subplots in this episode um, revolving around a day's events at the Waystar offices. Logan has asked Shiv to initiate an editorial shift at ATN with the intention of putting more pressure on the president to interfere in the DOJ investigation. 
Shiv stalls when delegating the task to Tom, but eventually seals the deal by personally pressuring Mark Ravenhead. Meanwhile, Roman tries to procure blackmail material on Kendall by digging up photos of a man they once paid to have Kendall's initials tattooed on his forehead, but Jerry discourages him from publicizing the photos since Roman would also suffer reputational damage. Finally, after a meeting with Logan and a visit from an increasingly anxious and unstable Tom, Greg signs a JDA, or Joint Defense Agreement, to formally accept Waystar's legal counsel in exchange for unspecified career advancement. Now, the A story of this episode... Uh, is about a major investor named Josh Aronson, played by Adrian Brody, who summons Logan and Kendall for a joint meeting at his private island estate. Aronson's 4% stake in the company, which has lost significant value, could be decisive in the shareholder vote, which neither Ken nor Logan want the family to lose. On the island, Aronson seeks reassurance that father and son can work together and seems temporarily mollified by Logan's grudging profession of love and admiration for Kendall. However, on a long, meandering walk back to the house, Ken and Logan have a vicious argument, and the combination of physical and emotional stress causes Logan to collapse. Aronson's confidence in the family leadership is again shaken, and Kendall sees Stewie arriving on the island as he departs, spelling trouble for the looming shareholder meeting. So as I said, we're kind of at the midpoint of this season. We know that next week we've got the much-anticipated shareholder meeting um, as sort of the centerpiece of this season. And this episode felt to me a little bit like a little bit of kind of circling the wagons and waiting for the big fireworks next week. There's a little bit of a subdued quality to it. And the episode to me really seems constructed around this idea of what Ken and Logan's first face-to-face meeting after the events of the season two finale, what that meeting is going to be like. Uh, what that uh, what what that feels like for these characters. Uh, obviously, it's something that would just compound the drama if they were to delay this to next week's shareholder meeting. And they really sort of contrive an interesting scenario where these characters are isolated. They are on this island estate. Uh, they're away from their entourages, their retinues, and they are both in this sort of uh, you know defensive position where they need uh, Josh Aronson. Uh, to be persuaded that they can work together when they very much uh, don't seem to be on the same page. Uh, You know, uh, Gabby, we were talking a lot about uh, this sort of sense of this isolated set piece on this island. How did this uh, feel to you, this episode? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the first time going through this episode, I felt a little disoriented, which is not a bad thing, nor is it the first time that this has happened to me watching Succession. Um, We know that Succession is designed to be a complex viewing experience. It's kind of baked into the show's project. And it's also why I'm so emphatic all the time about rewatches and um, encouraging people to rewatch the show because there's just so much you pick up on the more you watch. Um, You know, it's also why I spend hours of my life (laughs) talking about this show on this podcast, right? Um, You know, and we know when Jesse Armstrong is creating a season of Succession that him and his team, they don't adhere to a formulaic or a rigid process. Um, it's been said that there's there's very little rehearsal. The show is shot and written in a way that's free-flowing. Actors, directors, camera folks, pretty much everyone involved in the show has commented on how liberating it is to work on a set like this. Um, and I think that means as viewers, we're also asked to let go of some of our expectations, particularly around the show's handling of genre. And that's also kind of why I suspect that um, the viewing experience is difficult for some people when it comes to this show, although there are multiple reasons for that. 
Um, you know, yeah, in the last minute of the last episode, the disruption ended on like a, a very high drama moment, which the show doesn't always do. So when it picked up in a more comic scene here in Ken's apartment, you know, you kind of have to recalibrate a little bit as a viewer. Mm-hmm. But I do think it was a really spectacular episode, particularly the major set piece with Ken, Logan, and Josh. Um, this episode was directed by Shari Springer Berman and Robert Pulcini, who also directed Safe Room, one of the Roy cast's personal favorite episodes. Um, and the use of guest directors as the show has gone on kind of ramps up this element of, of surprise each week, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and so there's this very sitcom-y element with what's happening at the Waystar offices here. And I was glad to have an office episode that was kind of lower stakes and more playful. Um, I love any glimpse we get into the like humdrum goings-on at the Waystar offices. My only quibble, and I was talking um, about this with Brendan earlier, was the feeling that maybe we should be getting more of an ATN storyline. Like, when there are ATN scenes on this show, I feel like I'm feasting. Like, they're always so good. Um, So in this episode, I mean, I I would have loved to have seen Sid Peach. I would have loved to have seen the meeting where Tom gets his clock cleaned by Ravenhead. Um, or, you know, have them maybe introduce another anchor or producer. But, you know, the ATN stuff is always gold. And I'm always going to say that we're never getting enough of it. I am happy we got Ravenhead stuff, though. He's really good. And I love that scene at the end with Shiv. Um, Zach Robitis plays that character really well. And I, I do enjoy the consistency that he's been there since season one. You know, but then there's something totally different in style and tone happening out on Aronson's Island. You know, there's this vibe. It's a disquieting vibe from the outset. We have to discern a lot via body language. And, you know, you don't feel like anyone is quite saying what they mean. And the idea of them you know, being on an island lends itself to that unease. Um, the house itself is obviously like a marvel architecturally, but I didn't really like it. It's overly modern and kind of characterless. And um, sure enough, there was a quote from the production designer, Stephen Carter, on this house where he says, you want to feel that these people don't have the creative wherewithal to connect personally to the things in their lives. They're not out combing flea markets looking for the perfect mid-century piece. They're hiring decorators. Making the decor a bit cold highlights the hollowness of the characters. Um, And I think we see that reflected also in Adrian Brody's character, who seems, you know, kind of untrustworthy and slick. Um, At first, you know, Kent has his pitch and it sucks and it seems like Josh maybe respects and is allied with Logan, but then not so much. Um, And I had a hard time reading some of the quieter moments and subtext here at first, but the payoff was extraordinary. I think it was a brilliant choice for the long-awaited Kent and Logan reunion. Yeah, it's a really powerful scene. I want to get Vic's thoughts generally on uh, how this whole sequence on the island played out uh, for him. So, Vikram, how how does this uh, reunion play for you? Does it feel? I, I, I mentioned, I said, the, I used the word contrived earlier. I don't really mean that in a negative sense, uh, but it does really feel like this episode was uh, engineered to make this confrontation happen. So, how did that feel for you, and uh, how did you think that? confrontation worked as kind of a payoff for you know this is the longest time that we've gone in the series easily without ken and logan sharing a dialogue scene much less physical space how did this play for you you know it's really funny because i you don't have to walk back contrived because that's also what i felt too but it's contrived in the way that like television drama necessarily has to contrive these things Mm -hmm. in order for these confrontations to actually exist. And I did not realize until 
both Logan and Ken got to the island that that was actually the first time since last season. Like, it hit me kind of very suddenly mm-hmm. where I was like, oh, wow, okay, so this is actually why they're doing this whole A story. Right. Because they're, I, I, for, I had forgotten, because they had spoken on the phone. They had, like, yeah. argued on the phone or whatever. I had, I had forgotten that they actually hadn't shared physical space. And I was like, oh, that's why they're doing this. And I think that's a good, that's just TV. That's a good reason to do a TV episode, frankly. And I loved everything on the island. I genuinely, mm-hmm. I, 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 I genuinely thought it was fantastic. I was under the initial impression, and I almost, I, I, I did, was initially disappointed when they started speaking. Because I thought <laughs> it was just going to be, they were just going to be dead silent anytime that Adrian Brody left the room. And I thought that was such a great choice for their first two moments alone right. where they're just not saying anything. And I was like, it would be really ballsy if you guys just did this whole confrontation and they said nothing. I, I like I was almost like I was almost getting ready for that perverse sort of pleasure of like, oh, wow, you're really just going to you're just really going to do that. But when they started fighting, I loved it. I was just I thought it was fantastic. I think that whole scene when he started to like breathe heavily and he's really just kind of twisting the knife in that and you know Kendall's twisting the knife yeah and it was signature uh, succession yeah oh it's it's fantastic and it's just like oh this is why the show is really good it's (laughs) like it's like it's really it's just very obvious at this point where I'm just like oh wow you can actually just engineer these moments and pay them off effectively and do it really well and that's and that's fine like I'm just like that's all that's all you need to do and I don't know. I don't know. There, there. We can say more later. But I was very. I've been. I. I think Jeremy Strong is kind of doing some sort of masterclass every week, and uh, I really loved him turning, twisting the knife with the anti-Semitism. Like I was kind of very mm-hmm. impressed with that when he was just like, "Fuck you!" Like, "Fuck this nonsense!" Yeah. That like, that like he's putting up with. And I'm the only one who's gonna has the balls to like call you out on while you're just like dying on this on this walk. Uh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, that I I thought I thought I mean I I liked all the stuff back in the back in the home home palace too. But uh, I think everything <laughs> on the island was uh, was just fantastic. The home palace as opposed to the to the island palace. Yeah, we the we want to we want we'll, we'll dig more into the office stuff a little bit further uh, further down in the ep. Um, and I do especially want to hit the ATN stuff, but yeah, we do want to stay with uh, this confrontation. I like that you s- said it would have been great if they just never said a word to each other. One of the big reasons that that works so well when you know that first uh, that shot when Aronson you know leaves the room for a second, and Logan and Kendall are just standing there, not looking at each other, just standing there in that silence. And that scene works because uh, we've now the show's now been going long enough that there is such a sense. Not just of the particular recent events, but the whole history between these characters and between these actors is so freighted at this point that they really can luxuriate in a silence like that. Everything we know about uh, the history between Ken and Logan and everything we know sort of extra textually about the sort of uh, workflow friction between Cox and Strong, who are very, very different actors and approach scenes very, very differently, and the sort of sparks that fly uh, in these confrontations between them. All that is loaded into this very freighted silence between these two characters. And, you know, insofar as uh, repression can be a thing that jumps out, 
I thought the Catholic repression, you know, really jumped out uh, in this episode. Uh, we were talking recently about the Roys being canonically Catholic, and, you know, I don't get very personal or autobiographical on this show, but as somebody who's from that background, uh, some of these dynamics and this body language, uh, <laughs> but, you know, between father and son, I thought, you know, that was a, that was a bullseye, um, the way that that dynamic played out in these actors and in this writing. Um, so there's this great uh, scene uh, where they're on the on the shore, right? They're having this lunch or whatever, which nobody seems to eat very much of, uh, you know, in, in true <laughs> in true in true succession fashion. We've got a, we've got an amazing meal being served to us on the beach, and you know nobody really eats any of it. Um, but uh, where Logan has this opportunity, he's pushed to voice what his true feelings are about Ken and I did get the sense that they were his true feelings because Aronson wants to hear something that isn't bullshit from Logan basically he wants to you know he wants to make Logan work with him and confront him as an honest broker and Logan gives this little speech about how Ken's a good kid and he loves him and he disagrees with what he did but he was doing what he thought was best and that he, you know he thinks he has what it takes to lead the company one day um, and then immediately of course you know as soon as uh, Ken has the opportunity uh, to say something to him in private later, um, he uh, he walks that back. He says he didn't mean any of it, and I thought, and you know, and it's another very. Says, uh, go ahead. He Kate. says, "You do anything to get fucked on on a, to get fucked, fucked on, on a date. You'll yeah. say anything. Uh, yeah, to get fucked on a date, which was pretty. It is. Um, it is. It is like a date, right? He's buying them a really right? nice meal exactly. and everything, um, but. Uh, but it, it just struck me again, it's this sense of history where we know that, you know, there was a time, you know, back in the pilot where this is all Ken ever wanted to hear from his father. And now he can't really accept it. Um, he, he, you know, he, he thinks it's bullshit. Um, and I think there's there's good reason that he would have to think that. But, you know, as we've just outlined, I also think that Logan does mean it when he says, but neither of these men can really deal with that. And the, there is such a sense, I think, in this episode and in this season so far of the parallels between Ken and Logan. And I think in this sequence between them, uh, we really get the sense of how alike they are um, and how much like his father Ken has become, uh, mm -hmm. largely because Logan has sort of pushed him to that place. One of the interesting things about the two uh, scenes that are full of silence, um, Vic, as you were mentioning, the one in the house earlier... Uh, when they're first left alone and then uh, it's complete silence not looking at each other totally awkward the score was like had like kind of this low humming frequency you know that created like a, a super tense moment and then uh, at the lunch you know they were both uh, when Aronson takes the phone call and they're left alone together and this time they are communicating they're not saying anything yeah, exactly. But you could the the they're both looking at each other. There's a conversation happening just without words. And again, like these guys are top notch actors. And for them, it's really it was really wonderful and electric to see, um, to see all of that uh, play out. And yeah, electric is the word that I first uh, on my first watch came came. Um, came to mind for me watching it was just like they engineered this Aronson scenario to make to act as some kind of guide some mediator that were able to get this conversation between Ken and Logan that we wouldn't and 
otherwise in any other, you know, in any other way. So I thought it was a smart, contrived um, move by, you know, the writers. It, it yeah. was contrived, but it worked. It totally worked. Like, yeah, like, like Vic was saying, I almost sort of forgot that this was the first time that they've been in each other's presence. Um, and, yeah, some of those, I mean, the silence just spoke volumes. And I, I think you could see genuine pain on Logan's face, um, you know, and, and you have to remember, like, yeah, this is the first time they're seeing each other after Ken's, you know, big betrayal. Um, and I think that Logan did mean what he said. But Logan is also tormented by the fact that he really doesn't want Ken to take over and he doesn't think he's ready. Um, and yeah, I, I think, you know, the on the walk when they're sort of, um, you know, calling each other out for various shit and, and, and Logan is kind of uh, regressing to like the, you know, you lost, you're fucked. Um, mm-hmm. it, it reminded me a lot of the vote of no confidence. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, I just think Logan has just this such strong ambivalence about Ken's betrayals. Like, he, he, you know, it's the only way that he respects him and that he sort of uh, finds him engaging and interesting as a character. But at the same time, um, it hurts him. And, it, it, you know, I, I think here there was there's always sort of a, a fine line when they're playing with Logan's health. Um, you know, is it just the fact that he's just an old man or, you know, is there some you know, something about the repressed pain of all of this that um, is also catching up to Logan physically. And, and yeah, it was just, um, you know, that walk that once it once it just focused on that walk and there was no kind of like returning back to the office, I don't know how long the stretch was. Um, right. the, ten- the tension was just unreal. Um, and, and you could once you started hearing the breathing, you're like, oh, shit, you know, the heavy breathing. <laughs> you know what's you know what's coming up. I mean, for yeah. me, I- I, I had forgotten at that scene that we were so late in the episode. I was thinking, oh, my God, is this going to be like a conceptual episode where they're just we get like this inside conversation. And it, and it had this like otherworldliness, as we've mm-hmm. kind of mentioned. They're on this island. Uh, there's total silence. They didn't use the score or uh, there's total silence in that they don't use, you know, they don't have any score moments. It's all just gut punches back and forth and it it felt almost like I don't know not that they were having a conversation with themselves but I don't I I, and I guess I'm wanting to ask this more as a question did anyone else like get a sense of like kind of a mystical thing like Josh's oh I'm up ahead you know I'm got like as the guide or something I don't know if I was reading way too much into it but it really had a like ethereal feel for me um, yeah, it was weird. I mean, just the shots mm-hmm. of like the brush, um, like right, really yeah. high up. Like it was, and, and from behind, there was there was a really great shot when they're like turning the corner. The whole thing was was really unsettling. Well, I, I I do think it's like they are sort of getting to the point where they are kind of just keeping them. It's sort they're formally keeping them in their own little bubble, even when they're you know, in proximity with Adrian Brody's character. So all, all of everything you're describing right now is absolutely part of that impulse of just sort of like, what can we do to sort of ensure that these two people are theoretically alone in a room, even when they're outdoors. Mm -hmm. And 
I think it's fascinating the way this show depicts Logan's health. I think it's I think yeah. it's really just like one of those things where like uh it's it's such an it's a cuz to him it's all optics, it's all image, it's all like I'm totally fine, like I'm in control. Mm-hmm. I I I don't I I'm totally okay. I don't need to take a breath. And I think what I like about Succession is that this is a show in which everyone is in varying degrees of full of shit. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it would be a, a a lesser show would have painted Adrian Brody's character as a more morally ethically superior individual. Right. But we very quickly find out he was lying about his daughter. We yep. very quickly find out that it's not really like, oh, he doesn't want to get into blood feuds or whatever, but it's really just he wants the two of them to eat shit in front of mm-hmm. him. Absolutely. Yeah. He's pushing Logan's buttons to yeah. go on this walk to do this. There's absolutely this adversarial kind of like. It's this whole thing of like, I want you to like to kiss the hand mm-hmm. because you yeah. need my 4% and I'm going to take you out to the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And, and you know, before that he was already like rolling his eyes at Kendall, even with his voice. When Kendall was like, oh, come to my birthday party or whatever. And he's like, yeah, whatever, man. Fuck you. Like, yeah. It's a, Kendall's it's, initial pitch about like, uh, well, he's you, like. You, me, and Henry Kissinger. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But, but Kendall, he's so stupid. He's like, he's like, so uh, is this, you know, is this all good? And Kendall's like, uh, yeah, you know, it's good. It's bad. It's whatever. Like, I'm I'm better than my dad. But my dad is still better than uh, Stewie and Sandy. It's just like the most uninspired pitch ever. He's absolutely riffing. He sounds like the uh, the Aussie guy, you know. Right. Just he thinks like he's, he's he thinks just he's like having just fun. doing a scat, you know. Yeah, and and I like how uh, the you know the way that they got they manipulated Ken to actually take the meeting, which you know he didn't want to be railroaded at first. Um, was of course you know his surrogate daddy Frank calling him up and saying, "Well, you know, um, you need to show Aronson who you are." In the case that you know Logan. Uh, you know, has to step down and, and Ken is like, well, you know, Aronson likes me. I'm a lock. And Frank has to be like, uh, you know, that's not what he tells people. Again, Ken just like completely missing the mark on how people perceive him and whether they like him or not. Um, you know, so that gets him to go like that, that motivates him. And, you know, when Logan comes in at first, it seems like Josh is respecting him. And I don't know, like, I just, you can't really quite tell. Yeah. At at what King Kong, at what point he decides, you know, you know, he's there to test them. Right. But like, Mm -hmm. at what point does he decide, you know, the more cruel physical test and like the, the thread of the anti-Semitism throughout their meeting is like it's very subtle at first like the comment about um counting your gold in your castle it took me yeah. a, like a second watch to clock yeah, that, yeah. that ken kind of read that Stay as like shut the fuck up you know and then the bagel comment obviously it was like you know and then you see adrian brody responding to, responding to these kind of like hey you know like you know um and you don't know you know see if the whole time is he planning on on having that that physical test but there, it's certainly a test of sorts because obviously he was lying about his daughter and he could have come to the city. It's not like this guy doesn't have people to watch his daughter anyway. Um, no, for sure. Yeah. I, I, it, it, it all. No, keep going. Go, go, go. I, I was just going to say it all come. I mean, it, it, it. he says, I have a gun to your head. I mean, that's essentially like, it, mm-hmm. that's, that's his moment. That's what he's been. That's what he wants them to know and take away. And he actually literally says it at the, at the, um, yeah, you know, uh, lunch. 
Yeah. Well, this it's again, this is another instance of, you know, we've talked a bunch on this season about uh, some of the resonances of the way this show casts, whether they're all intentional or not. And, you know, when Adrian Brody was first cast on this show, you know, like we, I think we talked about how this casting was announced like at the same time as Alexander Skarsgård. And we're like, oh, my God, like, you know, movie stars are taking over our TV show. What's happening? Um, but uh, it, it, the way that they use him in this is is smart in a sense, in the sense that he's almost sort of a decoy, right? Again, we, he's sort of this instrument that they're really using to engineer this confrontation between Logan and Kendall. So there's a sense in which he's kind of a decoy. Uh, but there's also this real thing of where you've got Adrian Brody, who, you know, is, I still think still the uh, the youngest ever to win the Best Actor Oscar, right? And he's uh, and there is this uh, real sort of like defensiveness and insecurity that he's got about Logan. You know, he, Logan doesn't respect him. And this whole meeting is, in a sense, about trying to get Logan, uh, this old guard guy. Uh, to respect him. There's these allusions to him having, you know, got in at the right time, whether he was, you know, a dot-com entrepreneur, or whether he was a venture capitalist guy who made a couple of good uh, uh, big bets. Um, Those are some of the things that are sort of at work in that scene. And then, yeah, you have this this really ugly kind of uh, anti-Semitism that surfaces. But uh, Aronson is also sort of a decoy in another way, because uh, Kendall sort of assumes for whatever reason, uh, that Aronson's going to be on his side because he's younger, maybe because he thinks he's progressive in some way. Uh, But Aronson, you know, really interestingly, when he gets to this island, he's kind of talking a lot of the same sort of like gangster mafia ethos language uh, that Logan has. He's like, what? He's like, what? You want your dad to go to jail? Uh, You know, Kendall saying like, well, this thing's in motion and Aronson's like, well, not really. You could walk it back, and you kind of, you know, he doesn't push right. it too hard, but he's very much like, you know, we could we could walk this back a little bit. And as much as we've talked about, you know, the way the first couple episodes of this season have had this sense of history and sort of a momentum and things outside these characters coming in to take over, uh, a lot of stuff in this episode is sort of about how secrecy functions and about how power uh, sort of reasserts itself uh, in the face of what looks like overwhelming obstacles and overwhelming uh, tides of change. Uh, You know, a figure like Aronson can just kind of subtly say like, well, this is all kind of bad for business, isn't it? And maybe things just go back to the way they were. See, I think it's like, okay, yeah, no, this is I I completely agree with all of that. I think it's fascinating that if you want to tie it to a sort of religious angle, uh, the, the charitable reading of Aronson's whole perspective is, well, we have to keep the you know, we have to respect family and we have to respect like the idea that you don't you don't throw family under the bus. You don't throw you don't put dirty laundry out there. And we're doing this out of a sense of obligation. Even if you have issues with your dad, even if, if issues with all of that, you don't want him to go to jail. And that is the charitable reading of this that is obviously undercut by his sort of slimy corporate nonsense mm-hmm. and a sort of like vengeance by way of uh you know, like, don't don't look down on me just because I got in at a good time. But it's interesting to tie into, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but it's an interesting parallel with Roman's whole nasty trick mm-hmm. with with the the homeless guy and the tattoo when he at, he finally gets the photos of it, and Jerry's whole thing was like, keep this in your back pocket. Don't throw this out there. Don't just play this petty trick. Not only will it look bad for you, 
but it looks bad in general. And so there's this whole idea of like keep things in the family for optics or keep things in the family for a sense of obligation and respect. Ethics. And ethics. And like it's fascinating because it's fascinating to get the ethics lecture from a clearly unethical guy. And so mm-hmm. there's this whole mm-hmm. bit where, you know, where he's like, I need to hear it from both of you that this is not going to be a problem. And both of them do, you know, both Logan and Kendall are like, no, it's not going to be a problem. This is a functional situation or whatever. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, he's like, yeah, I don't believe you. <laughs> like, right, it's right. It's just like, it's complete right, right, bullshit. Right. That's another great, uh, by the way, moment of father-son synergy because they both do the uh, the sort of trademark Kendall. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't notice that. Uh, my favorite Kendall moment, just very briefly, and this is like absolutely captures him completely, is when he quotes Roadrunner and then says it's from Roadrunner uh, is, 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 is yeah. the Kendall moment of the episode. Because oh. it's like you can't let a reference lie. You have to explain it right. because it's your fucking dad who doesn't know what Roadrunner is. If, if we're doing favorite Kendall moments, mine was manifested at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well manifested. Done. The secret. We should have a shots of like Kendall reading the secret. <laughs> um, what about Kendall and his, uh, his rabbit? Oh my that's, god! Okay, that's so okay. sad. Oh my god! Well, okay, so, so let's sad. so let's so we're yeah so we're talking about yeah Ken being kind of uh, a shitty dad maybe but uh, I want to stick with you know Logan uh, with with his dad first and and, and talk yeah. about we uh, we we hit a little bit on the way that the show treats Logan's health. You know, it's been a while since we've seen Logan really in a position of uh, sort of physical frailty, um, and it it. it in some ways, this is kind of funny because, you know, since season one, where the pilot ended with him having, you know, the stroke and this big health scare, Brian Cox is obviously like a lot trimmer and looks a lot sort of like yeah. hailer and healthier than he did uh, back when they shot that pilot several years ago. Um, so so th- that's so that's sort of it's sort of funny when the show trots out like, oh, no, he still has these really serious health problems. But the thing that's happening in the show, because that's all extra textual, the thing that's happening in the show is that it sort of seems like this kind of conflict sustains Logan. And it almost seems like it's de-aging him sometimes. And that this kind of like having to fight for his life uh, is what makes him younger and gives him energy and makes him feel alive. Um, which is why I thought it was really interesting that when he starts to collapse in the scene, he starts by like coughing something up. It's like he's suppressed all this stuff and there's yeah. still like something very internal that is rotting, that is going bad inside him. Whatever engine is cranking into overdrive is starting to break down a bit. Um, if there's no. a, go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I had nothing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because I, th- I think there's a line on that uh, walk where, in, or and even in the conversation with Ro- between Roman and Ken at the very end of the episode, where they uh, they say too much sun, and I think this is a line from Hamlet, right, where Hamlet says I'm too much yes. in the sun, and it's this yes. this it's this sort of punning thing about Hamlet's position as like the sun, right, like the the, the burdens of of the sun as relate to the father, right, uh, but uh, you know I was talking about this with Kate, and you Kate you teased out this really interesting implication too of just the idea of like sunlight too, and, and the other meaning of that sure yeah i was thinking about the juxtaposition of what happened at the end of last episode and what's happening at the end of this and that you know the sun basically you know it, it, it kills him to a degree or injures him and i was just thinking you know they he decides to cooperate at the end of last 
episode and what's the sunlight going to do to him there i thought it was just an interesting you know parallel thinking of well maybe the sun isn't so good for a kendall or for a logan or for you know the way well, yeah it's it's bringing sun- stuff to the surface and that you know whether it's the misdeeds of waystar or whether it's you know repressed trauma and um you know within logan um right. it's you know things are coming to the surface that they would probably like to you know keep keep suppressed um keep, but keep you can't <laughs> you can't fight the sun baby you know like at, at some point um everything is going to come out and and yeah it's interesting you know brendan talking about this sort of like repressed catholic dad archetype and just the way that yeah the way that the the fight with ken um it seems like he would almost yeah like he would die without it like he would be bored this is his um yeah this is where he's comfortable, you know, whether it comes from the, the conflict that existed in his early childhood. Um, but yeah, it, it just seems like um, as much as it, it pains him and and, um, and and he feels, you know, betrayed or whatever, um, he he likes it. I, I find it fascinating that uh, this is this is sort of one of my favorite things that TV does generally, but it's just like we're going to put uh all of the right ideas in the mouth of someone who's morally dubious mm-hmm. and and Kendall is that person mm-hmm. because it's really hard to disagree with Kendall with anything he's saying like i've found it i've come to this point now where i'm like you're fucking right about a lot of this stuff yeah. but you're also coming at it from a perspective that's inherently corrupted like you're exactly. like all of this is you know your motivations Right, even even the pitch the pitch to the siblings in episode two about America being a declining empire and Waystar being a declining empire within that, yeah, absolutely. It's all about besting his dad. Yeah, it has nothing to do with anything else. It's it's just so funny to me because I'm just like I agree on paper with almost everything you're saying, but you're also full of shit, which Mm -hmm. is why, which is why it's very good. But I my, my but the other thing is more just like. To take to to take to the father son dynamic, uh, I there's something about this idea of people with money taking money from people that they fundamentally disrespect, but yeah. they have to be polite to, yeah, because mm-hmm. of the money they're receiving and also because of social niceties, and which is why the anti-Semitism sh- stuff in this is very fascinating to me. Because I've been around people like this where it's like, oh, we're all buddies here because we're all in finance or like, oh, we're all like we're all just in the club because we all have money. But like never forget that you're a Jew and I'm not that that there's a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy. And it's like and it's just these little digs that I guarantee you like I I hate character psychologizing, but it's it's like I guarantee you Logan doesn't think it's anti-Semitic. Logan thinks that's just how business is done and i don't think logan like is explicitly you know an anti-semite like i i he is but i think he's just more of a cultural chauvinist you know like like that's just who he is it's this very like old school type of of background that he's coming from this era um you know it's a very recognizable type of kind of like american british german northern european guy um but you know it's not the 70s anymore and and again this also speaks to like 
yeah, Logan sort of being left behind in a way. Like, it's not that smart to be anti-Semitic uh, in <laughs> the 21st century um, corporate world. You know, like, you're going to be left behind at some point. And guys like Josh Aronson might, you know, big dick you and, and fuck you over. Um, even if you think that, you know, he's just some, you know, fucking Jew or whatever. It's also um, just people are better at picking up at the code words now. Mm-hmm. In a way yeah. that he doesn't realize Like that's the disconnect right. Right. It's just like It's just like Everyone's aware Of the innuendo Yeah And he thinks it's still Like a secret language Between him <laughs> and his Fucking cronies Back in the day Right And it's like Everyone at the table Knows exactly what he's Talking about No well, blacks No Jews No women above no, The no, fourth yeah. floor He's not woke And um. the other side Of this double ed- <laughs> The other side Of this double edge um, of Logan having to take money from somebody he resents, you know, and there's also this big element of, uh, you know, the old and the young here, and we previously have seen how much Logan resents having to, you know, listen to Stewie's input when Stewie's on the board in season one, right? You know, Logan mm-hmm. just, you know, resents having to cape for anybody younger than him. Uh, but there's also this sense in which Aronson, you know, he genuinely does need Logan, right? And I was so struck by this, this image, the way that uh, Berman and Pulcini shoot this scene of Logan's collapse is mostly in these like head-on uh, medium shots tracking backwards from them and when uh, Logan collapses you get this shot of Kendall sort of like propping him up and holding up his arms um, and I, th- I thought of it as like almost a mirror of that shot in season two's hunting when Logan drapes his arms and his head over Kendall and they appear for a moment like a, a beast with two faces um, you get sort of the reverse of that here where you had the sense there that Logan was sort of keeping Kendall alive. Now you have it here, both in that sense of conflict, but also when Aronson takes Logan's arm, the sense that these younger generations, you know, they, they, they need these old guys, these old guys who they kind of hate and, you know, think are racist and shitty uh, to stick around. Because without these guys, these domineering personalities like Logan, what do you have? Business fundamentals? You think your business <laughs> fundamentals are special? Sandy and Stewie can do that. Exactly. Yeah, buying Gojo, whatever that is. <laughs> I have no idea what he was talking about. I, w- I kept thinking of uh, what is the uh, the Google equivalent uh, on the Good yes. Wife Chum Hum. That's what Chum-hum. it sounded <laughs> yeah. like. They they came oh up with God. that and they came up with that in like season one of the Good Wife, and then just like it sounded so stupid, like it was a placeholder. But they just like they had they had to keep bringing it back because it was like the in universe like internet. So they just had to keep saying Chum Hum every season for like seven years. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. what, what does Ken say? He says a uh, sh- shitty UI, good good, good content, right? Good UI, <laughs> shitty content. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, Gabby, you spoke about you know Logan's uh, ambivalence earlier, but you know, and and Brendan mentioning that Logan really does love Kendall, and I think that's true. And you know, Kendall here propping him his ad up, and you know, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious, despite all the ambivalence and despite. Um, you know all the antagonism that he definitely also does love Logan yeah he doesn't want him to die no. not ready for no. that <laughs> the post dad world right kidding me he's gonna <laughs> he'll have a nervous fucking breakdown when he dies that's I mean they exactly that's they don't realize it but that yeah exactly Logan is what's keeping them going right it, I think um, Ro- Roman if if any of them is the only one who really realizes how bad it's gonna be when dad dies um, right but yeah, you know, you get that moment of urgency from Ken when, you know, he thinks his dad might be having a heart attack and he's like, oh yeah. shit, I need to actually, you know, 
getting I, I, fit into gear here. I, I laugh so hard when he's like, I know what a heart attack feels like. That's just not a heart attack. <laughs> like, yeah, re- re- really reassuring. Yeah, this is a no, this, this, this is a this is a different variety of pain than the heart attacks that I have felt before. <laughs> really, really great, Dad. Yeah, so let's uh, let's let's stay with with Ken for a minute, because I did want to just pose like this plot question and kind of take stock of how is the sort of Ken Gambit going? How is Team Ken doing? At the beginning of this episode, we see Ken sort of like gassing himself up. He's got his PR people in the penthouse. He's got Greg there. He's basically got his lackeys. Nobody's really uh, questioning him, uh, but he's like looking at footage of the Waystar FBI raid on the TV and going like, yeah, this is good. Yeah, getting getting great footage out of this. But, you know, on the island, Logan rattles off all these things that he's got going for him. He's got the president in his pocket. He's got uh, all the family members, all his si- all Ken's siblings have aligned themselves with Logan. Uh, you little know, Greggy. He's got he's got little Greggy. Um, we still haven't really seen what the documents that Kendall purports to have actually implicate Logan in. Um, so the argument that Logan kind of poses there, I was like, well, it's pretty compelling. You know, like is this thing kind of washed because? You know, what Ken has on his side, I think, is this momentum and, you know, this sense of public sympathy, perhaps. Uh, But Ken is not really a very sympathetic face uh, for this scandal involving the abuse and mistreatment of, you know, well, A, women and also people who worked for the company that he was in charge of. Uh, So it's 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 kind of an open question as to what Ken exactly has going uh, for this bid to dethrone Logan at this point. You know, does it seem like Logan can kind of weather this storm? Because you know, right up until that collapse, it really you know it really does feel to me like Ken's kind of washed. I mean, I will say one thing: it's not a fatal mistake, but Ken not getting Greg the watch was one of the dumbest things. Absolutely brutal. Like possible. Absolutely. Greg, Greg could be on his side. Like a complete you know, gimme. Po- yeah, it, and and I mean, I'm just watching this episode. I was just thinking, God, you're so fucking um, stupid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, uh, is, the hu- is the hubris, you know, like in season two, he exactly. get, when he's when he's not on his, you know, manic high, he gets him that gorgeous apartment. And then the thought of getting him a forty thousand oh. dollar watch is just like, you know, I'm not your fucking sugar daddy. They're laughing at it. It's and like, that could have sealed the deal. I mean, you know, so him getting the apartment is one of my favorite scenes in the whole show. The jumping <laughs> up and down just, just uh, for his delivery of. Yeah, you live here now. <laughs> just, just, just the flat Like delivery. I can take a lot in terms of psychological pain. <laughs> no, ha ha! He's, very he's funny. It's just like no, you, no, you live <laughs> here yeah, now. That's right. <laughs> uh, no, that was so. Fu- I mean, oh, what an idiot! Like I was just ridiculous. Like it's the easiest way to keep someone on your side. Like you spend forty k that you're never gonna fucking see, like even yeah. think about again, to keep this like child who got you mm-hmm. these papers that mm-hmm. are like your only leverage against this guy on your side. It's the easiest thing in the world. And he was like, nah, nah, you have to pay for it yourself, bro. Like, come right. on, brother. He like, had, he it. had, he had one viral post and was like, I'm getting new friends. I'm, I'm, yeah, mo- exactly. I'm moving up. <laughs> you know, here, here's a problem we already mentioned is that, you know, also Kendall seems to view like his business, 
partners or whatever as friends as he did with Aronson as he did with Stewie and there are no friends in business he's totally um, deluded about his yeah. likability factor <laughs> he's, yeah he right, severely but- overestimates his personal <laughs> charisma yeah so it doesn't seem like to answer your question Brendan that his strategy is all that strategic number one or um is going well Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's been a little while since we've had, like, a legal update from, you know, Lisa and whoever. So, you know, we'll probably get some of that next episode. But, yeah, I mean, he's just been kind of riding this this cultural high of, of, you know, the social media stuff. But doesn't really seem like the FBI raid is really amounting to anything. But, you know, we don't know yet. But Yeah. um, I I just think he's coasting on, on moral superiority. Right. Yes. Uh, which is again, which is like I keep bringing this up, but it's like that's that's the fascinating part of this is that he is morally superior, but he's also on the shittiest foundation ever. So yeah, like, the motives aren't pure. No, it's not. It's not. He's not a true whistleblower. He's just trying right. to like he's trying to piss I in love, his dad's cornflakes. I loved his reference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought the that a, the whistle, a yeah. traditional whistleblowing process would be subverted. Yeah. <laughs> 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 hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even even that conversation he fucked up, and and when Aronson was like, "So how much do you have on him?" and he's like, "Well, you know, for the legals, you know, I don't really want to say." He's um, implicated. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's true. He probably doesn't want to. He probably doesn't want to say. But I mean, we're free to infer right. as to why that might not be. You know, it might also be because he doesn't actually have anything. Um, right. right. Well, and then and then strategy. What does he even say at the at the lunch table at the shore? You know, meeting. He doesn't say a Nothing. word. He gives, I can't even he, remember he, if he says anything. He he doesn't. He cedes the floor to his father the entire time. And, and Logan is convincing. Well, that's also a, that's also in part because I think he re- he he may recognize that the meeting is really more about Logan than it is about him. Mm. Aaron, Aronson could kind of give a shit about him. He uh, yes. he 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 really is mostly there because he has this grievance that Logan doesn't respect him and then won't give him the time of day as a major investor, and he wants to make him kiss the ring. Uh, but there's mm-hmm. but there's all this other stuff in this episode, especially in that opening scene where you know, again Ken is not very sympathetic, and we notice that his uh, penthouse, his operations base, is at Hudson yards um which you know as opposed to sort of like the you know old school class of rava's uh you know woolworth building condo is the symbol of just like awful tacky new money uh new york excess um yeah uh just a truly ghastly blight on the city and uh the and then there's the clips of the rabbit cam uh this is which it's 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 succession is so good it's 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 something that is it's 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 very odd because the show is so uh unusual in the way that it directs these small details it never really calls attention to them overtly they always happen you know sort of in these wide shots uh where you see the rabbit cage at first you're like what is that and then he says rabbit cam and then it's just in the background while he's on the phone uh outside that you see jess is holding up an ipad (laughs) jess is just they've so he's gotten a rabbit that he keeps at his penthouse that his kids call on the ipad and he has jess (laughs) hold up the ipad so that they kids can video chat with the rabbit and again we were talking about ken kind of becoming his dad and kate and i were having a conversation about this earlier how i think ken would say that he's a much better father than his than logan was to him because he's making different choices his dad i don't know if his dad would have got him a rabbit cam or whatever um uh but uh you know for whatever ken thinks 
he's being a different kind of father than Logan was to him, he's more or less arriving at the same place where he doesn't really see his kids very much, and they don't he's have an absentee father, and they no, don't like really the have a relationship with him. Yeah. Exactly. Right. It's it's so easy to get caught up, as Vic has mentioned, uh, for various reasons to kind of like be or root for Ken or, you know, think that maybe he's in the right for certain reasons or empathize with him for his childhood. But if he had true, you know, motives, pure motives, whatever, if that even exists, you know, he would reflect back on the fact that his dad wasn't around and that that was a huge issue. And He's just a shit father. He's not there for them, and he's doing the bare minimum. Um, and yeah, it sucks. He's no. so self-absorbed with just like besting his dad. I think bare minimum else. is overselling it, probably. That's probably true. <laughs> I I do think that Ken's. I, if I have to speculate, Ken's whole idea is definitely well. I'm not actively abusing my children. Exactly, yeah. And the bar so, is on the floor. Yes. And, 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 as, as Logan and, said, right, none of my kids have offed themselves. Exactly. Right. And oh it, it, it's just like, as someone who has known a lot of uh, people of the generation below Logan, that is a bar that people are very proud to clear. Where it's right. like, well, I, I didn't hit my kids, so right. I'm doing yeah. fucking great. And it's like, well, okay, <laughs> well, it's you're, you're you're doing worse than you think, but yeah. that's definitely what he's thinking, a hundred percent. Which is that, like, well, I got them the rabbit, and they yeah, have the, the camp. It's so fucking yeah. cool, yeah. And, and it's like, isn't it amazing that they can watch the rabbit? And like, isn't <laughs> like, it's like, oh, I'm doing great. I'm kicking ass. Like, yeah, right. that's that's and, the and whole he- thing. And he even has to tell Jess to water it. Like, that's how much he fucking cares about it. But it's like, it's interesting, Vic, because you mentioned it's like the generational difference. And what we, you know, between generally boomers and Gen X. But what we learned this episode, actually, is that uh, Kendall is not Gen X. No. (laughs) No, yeah, he gives Gen X vibes, but he's he's on the cusp. I, I will say that he is, while technically a millennial... He is an, uh, he is almost he is enough of uh, has enough of a Gen X mindset to be put in that category. But yes, it is very clear. Yeah. It was it was it was it was a very nice tidbit where I'm like, oh shit, you're 39. Like that was a big, yeah. That was a big succession uh, doesn't really give us stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Like, I was surprised oh, wow. we got it. Yeah. Of the same generational cohort as his uh, spiritual cousin uh, Anthony Soprano Jr. So yeah, we've uh, man, we were we weren't going to have enough to talk about this episode. We've already gone uh, about an hour just talking about the Ken and Logan stuff. So 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 I I think there is less to talk about maybe in the stuff back at Waystar because there was a sense to me that some of this was kind of padding, um, you know, for this uh, this obviously this encounter that we've talked about that is the sort of reason that the episode exists in the first place. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the structure of the episode. There was on the official HBO Succession podcast last week an interview with Lucy Preble, who is a writer and producer on Succession, and she was talking about the process in the writer's room whereby the writers pitch ideas to each other 
And the question has come up many times, is succession essentially a comedy or is it essentially a tragedy? And she said something really interesting in this conversation, which was that they would pitch sort of those you know, contravening ideas in the room as, you know, if the show is a tragedy, here's how this scene would play out. Or if the show is a comedy, here's how this scene would play out. And try different approaches in that sense until they find whatever they think is the best idea or whatever they think is the truest idea for the characters. And I found this episode to be really interesting because this is almost an episode where you can sort of see those two approaches coexisting. The A story does feel like this sort of larger, more tragic story of this relationship between a father and son of this abusive father and his children who are struggling uh, to adapt to the possibility of a life without him. We get all of that in the Ken and Logan story. And then everything that happens back at Waystar sort of does have this kind of sitcom subplot yes. feel to it, right? Where Shiv and Roman are both kind of like it's a day at the office and they both sort of learn lessons about asserting themselves or like how to work. There's like sort of tidy, almost like morals insofar as Succession ever has morals. Like, you know, Jerry teaches Roman something about like you know that you shouldn't use this blackmail because it'll splash back on you and Shiv learns how to approach this really difficult problem of how to assert herself with ATN so yeah I wanted to talk to you about that Vic just because you've been on this sort of weekly TV sort of recap beat for so long and what you think of that idea that we have both sort of like the more dramatic and the more kind of like sitcom approaches coexisting so almost cleanly divided in this episode what do you think of that idea uh, I, I think the idea is great. And I think that, uh, it is absolutely why I fell in love with the show initially, which was that I, I didn't, as much as it, it's nice to get clarity on that, uh, behind the scenes process, it was extremely obvious to me that that was the case from just from watching it. Uh, because not only putting aside like Armstrong's sitcom background, but, to me, this felt very much like uh, a true hour-long comedy in the British sense, which is that it is like an, like a comedy in the British sense is never without drama. And here, you in America, we have to invent terms like dramedy, and we have to get you know very fancy <laughs> right. with these things. But but it no, it's absolutely just uh, a a very straightforward. Uh, you can either view it as a very straightforward comedy with dramatic elements or a very straightforward drama with a lot of comedic elements. And I, I do like when it, you know, it's funny. I don't mean to double back on myself, but like I, I, what I like about succession is that uh, up to the season is that there, it was a very episodic show. It was very much each show, each episode had a, a singular plot that tied into a larger, you know, season long arc, but there was an episodic plot every week, which is a very kind of quote unquote old school idea. And the beginning of the season, I did kind of get a little trepidatious where I was like, Oh, you guys are really committing to the macro plot this season. Mm -hmm. And I, I was like, I think that's fair. I think you've, you've done the two seasons. And like, if we're going, if you're only going four or five, maybe this is the season to do it. But I've actually been pretty impressed with how they've, they have kept an episodic structure, even with all of the macro stuff uh, that's kind of taken uh, front and center. And the all of the the Shiv, Tom, Greg, Roman 
stuff is very classic sitcom B and C plot. This could have, this could have, you know, these are these are plots that could have been on Cheers, or could have been on on whatever Superstore or whatever you want to choose. Like, I would I would, I would watch that version of Cheers. I mean, Cheers is great, but uh, I'd be... <laughs> no, it would it would have been a nastier version of Cheers. Uh, but I think it's um, I don't know. I think it's really funny that Shiv has become such a clusterfuck of a of a person it's just it's kind of hilarious that like she you know i i do think it was a deliberate inversion where she was initially positioned as the you know quote-unquote voice of reason quote-unquote progressive uh you know uh uh thorn the outside yeah. yeah yeah and now she's fully like in the family fully reactionary fully meadow soprano mob daughter uh <laughs> just this whole this whole bit that's still fighting for respect mm. like if you're taking shit from connor that's a that's a big that's a big blow yeah. to the self-esteem <laughs> that's a that's, a, that's an concerned. l yeah i don't oh, really want to deal with you shiv yeah just like <laughs> right, oh you're, you're you're still stamping all the post off you know like yeah. a fake oh that was that was fucking great i love that, that. Was, that, yeah. that was so funny we love getting stories about from their childhood and and that kind of piggybacked Gabby, yeah. on what you were saying last week about um, about uh, Connor about, taking, yeah. Thank you, Connor being the kind of parental figure, and Vic, apologies for for my rudeness. No, no, no. What? <laughs> well, so, but, so go ahead. No, no, no. rudeness. Keep going. <laughs> no, Kate, you were going to say something. No, I was done. Okay, great. Yeah, that's that scene with Connor was uh, <laughs> it was pretty funny. I, I just love I love Connor. I I want more. He's Connor amazing. Generally. Yeah. Al, Alan Ruck in amazing. his bag in this episode. Oh, just a great Alan this, Ruck scene. Always, the, always. I this season has really turned me into a con head even more so because <laughs> so, he's so efficient. Just such little spot, spurts of him, but it's perfect. Yeah, I had thought that he had given up the the POTUS dream, but now, you know, he says that, you know, with the Raisin getting reelected, he's going to make his move in four. Well, the <laughs> and, canny uh, thing is not to tie yourself to one election cycle, but to just sort of like ambiently, eternally be running for president. <laughs> that is the really smart career play. Uh, and that, it's and like that's the Ron Paul play, yeah. His his flag pen was a nice. Well, before touch. Trump, well before Trump actually ran for president, he did do that for like six yes. years. He Since did threaten to do well, it for like a long time. Threaten? No, Brendan's right. He did. yeah, no, he did. <laughs> Just the, the term threaten, and then I, it actually happened. Yeah, I I love that he's worried about the Rust Belt. Not I know. not uh, not Gormando. It's not gonna uh, help me win the Rust yeah, Belt. He's like, yeah, if I'm, the if I'm drinking Rioja, I'm, <laughs> I'm not. The Rust Belt's gonna turn against me. I'm like, ah, oh, that's. Well, well I want to see. Yeah, I want to see. Uh, I want to see what Gormando looks like because uh, you know it's just as long as we're uh, you know fantasy uh, fantasizing about what different sort of like succession versions of real world figures look like. I want to see Connor opposite uh, succession version Bobby Flay. I want to see what that's like. <laughs> Yeah, apparently that wine tasting show is a real show. Like, there's an analog for it. Yes, yes. Um, I don't, I don't know what it is, but I saw the chatter. Oh, the like the yeah, wine it, it, show it, it, with Matthew Reese and Matthew Good. I think like so. That. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's from Connor where we get the no Jews, no blacks, no women right. above fourth floor. Which is a, yeah, another you know glimpse into like the the good old boys club type of mentality we were talking about earlier. 
And I, yeah, I, he, he uses that as leverage and it's, it's yep. decent leverage in it's, this, yep. you know, in this current moment. I think often of Willa's line when he has to speak at the funeral in the second season <laughs> where, where, you know, he keeps saying, you know, it was a different time. It was a different right. time. She goes, yeah, but it wasn't a time before laws, was it? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I have used that. In, in my personal life uh, <laughs> quite a bit. It was just really funny when people say that. Like, and ah, but don't worry. It was a different time. I was like, yeah, but, you know. <laughs> or, or like uh, or like Logan said last week, like, it was 30 years ago. A lot of it. Right. <laughs> yeah, it, it was great. It's great these last few episodes, just how much uh, all the kids have implicated themselves and by, you know, kind of giving more detail to what they actually knew instead of illusions like specifics um you know whether it's with the cruise people or no and you know to actually have them you know textually face it definitely seems like connor has seen a lot Um, yes he's he's got a lot to to possibly bring to the surface so should we talk about um terminal tom yeah i mean i wanted to as long as we're talking about shiv hit that uh last note yeah. in that scene with her and Ravenhead because I, I joked about uh, the plot lines with Shiv and Rome sort of being about them learning lessons on the job and the lesson that Shiv seems to have learned uh, you know the thing she says to Ravenhead is that we don't get embarrassed um, which you know as far as uh, things for Shiv to kind of start internalizing if she's going to survive in this world of her fathers mm-hmm. is a pretty good one and it's a pretty good succinct and very character-based explication of this kind of reactionary ethos that the show is so steeped in, you know, as, as insofar as it relates to these characters, you know, the power of just being absolutely shamelessly on the side of evil <laughs> is, uh, is, is, is something that Shiv is, is learning to tap into. Um, and I, I, quite, I, I really liked that because, yeah, it's a very neat button on that little subplot, but it's something that rings absolutely true. And it's a nice rhyme with uh, Shiv's big humiliation in the last episode. Um, we see very quickly how she's learning to move on from that. Yeah, I mean, she gets <clears throat> slightly humiliated in this episode when she goes to see Frank and Carl and they're kind of like, uh, <laughs> OK, little girl, you know, uh, we'll <laughs> tell you everything. We promise. And then... Um, you know, dad kind of scolds her for being too uh, pushy with Carl and, and she doesn't expect him to, to have that response. She expects him to defend her. And then he, he says this um, interesting line, which I like, which I think, you know, kind of just encapsulates Logan's philosophy that everything everywhere is always moving. You know, there are no lines. And, um, you know, Shiv is temporarily saddened by that. But then it stirs something in her, kind of gives her a compass for how to act. Um, I think that she needs her dad to kind of be berating her as like an impetus for 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 movement to give her guidance otherwise she doesn't know what the hell to do like it's why the silence after um her meltdown and and turnhaven at the dinner table um was so devastating because um you know she doesn't know what to do unless dad is giving her something even if it's cruelty negativity yeah she's i mean she's weirdly it's so funny i just she's so trusting and also so gullible in many mm-hmm. ways in a yeah, way that it's like it's shocking it is, she's still so gullible it's mildly shocking because and I, I i don't think it's an oversight in the writing i i genuinely no, think I it's think so I, I i think it's because like this is what avarice does to someone who should know better 
Mm-hmm. Like that's that's yeah. the whole point, which is that like you have someone who theoretically on paper knows better, who is on paper uh, culturally two steps ahead of all of the men in her family. Mm-hmm. But because she wants the brass ring so badly, she's willing to not only conform to all of the things that are against her principles, but she's also willing to eat a lot of shit that you'd be surprised She's willing to eat. She's willing to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and then just give I, it another I go. Mean, yeah. Every, every time Logan comes back at her like this, all I can imagine is her looking at her phone when he's calling and it's Saddam Hussein. And it's like, <laughs> you knew who you were getting into bed. Yeah. It's like you said. I mean, she knows better, um, Vic, you know, and it's, it's, yeah, she, you know, you get into bed with Saddam Hussein. I mean, I mean, she's uh, she's his pinky. She's daddy's girl, and she's very eager yeah. to. Uh, She'll never give up on him. She's very eager to please, and that plays into what we talked about last week. That cynicism that she has, where wherever the wherever you know the goalposts are moved, she's going to go there. You know, she's she's going to she's going to adjust to whatever her dad tells her the world is. Um, Girls and, count double inter- now. And interestingly, <laughs> yes. Gabby. Oh God. That Mom, that that's the best right. line. That's the best line of the season. I even I and, crumpled when he said that. I was like, Holy and delivery. Shit. Yeah, his yeah, deli- yeah. yeah, that's what I was gonna say. His delivery. <laughs> don't you know? Yeah, yeah, girls count double it's, now. Like, oh, don't God. you know? Yeah. It explains a lot about the season. Uh, but yes, uh, Terminal Tom. We want to spend some time with with Tom yes. in this episode. Who, who he says has been given the nickname Terminal Tom because he has cancer of the career, uh, because he's continuing to kind of you know ideate about this idea that he's going he to spiraling. He's that he's going to be sent to prison. And there's this brutally funny runner in this episode where he's had somebody print out a binder for him of like the different federal prisons, and he's looking through it like a catalog and he's you know and he's and he's going like oh he's talking to shiv kind of just like casually like i'm you know i'm thinking of going to this one and and shiv's like oh is that the is that the one in maryland and he's like no no shiv it's like like uh like their prep like their like their prep schools or like fancy restaurants or something he's reading the zagat guide yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) yeah the michelin the michelin guide to to white collar prisons (laughs) you know it reminded it made me think of how much tom has changed and how much he and Shiv's relationship has just like hardened and cooled off because he's so concerned about losing his lifestyle instead of not having the relationship um or not being able to see shiv it's all about the wine it's all about that very cold glass of white wine Right. Oh, God. Right. I just, I just thought how cold, like the Good that's douchebag his... reminder for Tom. You know, just yeah. like this is he cares so much about this lifestyle. Well, I, I sort of, I sort of read that more as he's fixating on rather trivial details because he can't square up to the stuff that actually scares him, which is, you know, yeah, the loss sure. of some of these relationships. I'm sure, yes, the loss of his lifestyle is very frightening to Tom because it would be frightening to anybody um, who's from a comfortable background. The idea of going to prison, losing your freedom is you know yes quite terrifying even in these very petty ways um but i definitely read him as fixating on that stuff um because it's too painful to try to address his relationship with shiv which is obviously in a really bad place i mean her response to him when he's concerned about all this stuff is just she says literally says i don't know what to say to you she's tired (laughs) she's she's tired of it it's like tom you always do this every time that you're about to go to prison you get so stressed (laughs) and i can't handle it don't you think can't you think about how this is affecting me (laughs) right uh, I need to. I need to take over my dad. I need. I can't listen to you. Just blabber <laughs> on about which prison 
you hope to go to. Uh, I do think it's it's pretty. I don't know. Like I think it's wild that the only outlet Tom has is bullying Greg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do like. I don't know. I like Greg so much as just a comic relief character, but I do love that Greg's whole thing was like, "Stop fucking doing this, man! Like this is ridiculous! Like stop pushing me around in this like fake way." And Tom's only response to this is like, "You can't riff. This is a big career <laughs> obstacle for you." And I'm like, "I'm like, go fucking drink your toilet wine, man." That might like, have been my ridiculous. favorite line of the episode. Yeah. You're so hard to riff with. <laughs> it was a very childlike, uh, you know. For Tom, you know, you could see the like sort of desperation that he just like wants somebody to, you know, be affectionate towards, you know, in, in this kind of like playful boyish way. And Greg just does not having any of it. Uh, just it, it was rough. Well, playful. It had a lot of vibes of the pilot. Um, yeah. Except Greg, what, Greg actually kind of, uh, you know, fought back to a degree. Well, because the difference there is not that Greg has suddenly grown a spine, but that Tom's status has changed. That's what that episode. Exactly. That's what that's, exactly that's what that right. scene is really about. Yes. Is that uh, you know, yeah. as Tom is, uh, you know, really directly saying this to Greg, he's like, you know, you're going to be in this palace. You're going to, you know, you're going to make a nice deal with Logan, and your career is going to move up, and I'm going to be drinking toilet wine. You know, it's the you know, <laughs> the, going to be a bright star buffalo. Uh, it's a it's the classic dynamic you know the bottoms becoming the top you know as it were mm-hmm. um and uh, greg is now kind of free to tell him no he's hard to riff with because they were never really riffing before greg was just kind of forced to go along with whatever with tom said and this uh this relationship between tom and greg has been so fascinating because you know as much as it has been that kind of bullying thing where tom is sort of pretending he's a mentor but in a lot of ways he just likes having greg around for sort of to kind of make himself feel bigger um funnily because nick braun is so much taller right um you know that's uh, all that is all that is really changing for them and that solidarity that we sometimes feel and that we saw in hunting that silent solidarity where tom made this decision that he may not have even understood or acknowledged in the moment to protect greg and to remain silent um, when he could have sold him out to logan for an advantage um, that sense of solidarity has been really uh, lost between the two of them now that uh, they are in very different, you know, kind of legal situations. Um, and, uh, you know, they seem to be making kind of separate deals, but there might be a way uh, for Greg still to step in and, and protect Tom, perhaps, with this leverage that he has uh, since Greg's involvement in this whole scandal is very much uh, tied to Tom. And as much as we don't like trying to predict what future you know plot events or plot twists on the show might be it does sort of feel to me the way that tom is being kept a little bit separate from the main action and a little bit you know increasingly kind of spiraling it feels like we're building to something it feels like some track is being laid here um, I don't know what that might be. I mean, there was the implication in the last episode that he was hiring outside counsel, perhaps to strike a deal with justice. Um, but that isn't hinted at again here. So that's very much still an open question. Was anyone surprised that Greg folded so quickly? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Like, I, I, think I yeah, it really. I think it really came down to like the watch. I mean, not to yeah. put, <laughs> it, not to import so much, but like that's Greg. Like yeah. you do something nice for him and he's wooed and it's easy. And um, 
he was getting wooed, you know, with the baskets, with the, I mean, I was kind of surprised. Greg has definitely changed a lot for me since second season. He seemed to really have matured in second season and kind of become a player in his own right. And he's kind of back to the bumbling idiot of season one. Um, to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little surprised, too, just like by Greg's whole trajectory here and like being on Team Ken and then. Yeah, I mean, Logan is convincing. Yeah. He's persuasive. That conversation where he, you know, tells him this has got to be like a family process. You're doing this for the first time. He's scaring him a little bit. Um, but, I, yeah, I, it, it does seem like he folded pretty quick. I do think to bring it back to, like, the sitcom-esque elements of the show, you know, one of the one of the key things about sitcoms is putting uh, unlikely characters together as a, as a duo – and I love Logan and Greg as a dynamic. Mm. It's just it's just two people who <laughs> rarely get any screen time, yeah. rarely have a reason to have any screen time together. Mm-hmm. But anytime they interact, it's my favorite thing ever. Just like there is nothing like Logan calling for Coca-Cola and saying, <laughs> yeah. and saying the words Coca-Cola. Ah, Greg. Carry can we bring uh, Greg some Coca-Cola? Cox is just like fucking... It's, there's like nothing at stake in that scene, so Cox is just like cooking and having so much fun. Oh, that's so much wonderful. Fun. <laughs> I, I just love it. I also just love that Greg has enough balls to say, well, I need something in return, but he doesn't have enough brains to have yeah. anything in the chamber. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and Logan's like, you're shaking like a leaf, man. You got nothing here. Like, go fuck off and tell me what you want. Yeah. And oh, it's perfect. Well, Such a, oh. well Vic, uh, you, we, we, we made a bad man reference, I think, right before we started recording this. But I'm thinking now of the Hilton scene, right? When yes. Don first meets Hilton and, you know, he asks him what he wants. Uh, Hilton, this, you know, this super millionaire and. Don says, you know, I'd love an opportunity to, to work with you. I'd love an, a chance at your business. And Hilton says, okay, but the next time a guy like me asks you that question, you need to think bigger. Um, that's right. that's kind of what the scene is like. Um, and, you know, the whole Greg character, you know, we've often treated him as just comic relief because, you know, that is the function that he serves on the show. But the whole uh, joke that is of his character is this long, shaggy dog joke about how none of these characters ever really lose anything. They just kind of keep, you know, getting richer and failing upwards. You know, Greg starts off puking through a mascot's eye holes and you know he's just kind of keeps getting better jobs and a nicer apartment and uh you know his career seems to keep climbing through you know complete gormlessness uh but (laughs) but he is proving himself to be you know rather adaptable i don't think he's a schemer or anything or you know we joke about him being the machiavellian fuck that kendall called him but he's machiavellian in the sense that you know, as as Tom said, he really doesn't have any principles, right? He's just no, like right, he's just right. like I will, you know, Mister Fantastic style bend bend myself and stretch myself into whatever situation I need to adapt myself to. In that way, he is rather like Tom. Um, that's another reason mm-hmm. that they're such a fun pairing. Yeah, I, he's definitely always playing all the sides. I mean, even you know, he's not strategizing that much, but he's always open. You know, like you said, he has no real you know groundwork or rules or ethics or and so he's always looking for ways to one up or yeah you and, know, and sneak, the uncle you and thread is, is always open too you know right. so 
he's he's just he's a very reactive character he isn't thinking ahead ever he is you know he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't have things in his pocket that he wants whatever but if somebody says you can get ahead by doing this he'll say okay great thank you yeah (laughs) that sounds good i i always like passive apologetic characters like one of my favorite film performances of all time is griffin dunn in after hours because there's just nothing like weaponized passivity as like as like a driving motivator for a character and it's like greg is the perfect example there's nothing like him opening that bottle of wine in that first episode and his just like immediate like oh shit i'm so sorry like i i don't even want it it's like not a big deal like i just like (laughs) oh it's fucking perfect strong strong drink strong for a man Strong, strong for a man. I was going to say very briefly, you brought up Mad Men. Like, I, I, the Mad Men episode, this episode reminded me of is the one where Don gets back at Roger for hitting on Betty by making him eat all those oysters and drink yeah. all that booze <laughs> and get him to climb up yes. the stairs. Yes, yeah. And it's just like, I could not get that out of my head when he's like, yeah, no, it's like, this is. This is the short way, but it seems I think it might be the long way. Because they are eating, they are eating clams, and that's the exactly food on the table. Yep. Oh, that's so funny. Did Logan eat the clams? Did we actually see him eat anything? I don't don't think he ate anything. The only person, the only person we see eating is Josh, the clams. But there's also a platter of lobsters. Yeah. And no one's touched them. (laughs) Yeah. I have I have this note here that I, I sort of wanted to sidebar and talk about a complaint that I saw about the the Tom and Greg scene and the the sort of like Nero and Sporus thing and because it ties into this reaction that I have seen cropping up a lot uh, online as uh, the show has kind of progressed and the volume of discourse about it has been as sort of overwhelming as we as we knew it was going to be uh, and you know there's a number I, I only bring it up because there's a number of people who I think are you know really intelligent and smart who have uh, voiced in various ways this complaint that they think the show is being you know written towards like being memed or like written for Twitter consumption somehow which is is very puzzling to me but I also but I also thought it was potentially worth talking about just to see if there's something underlying that um, because I think that you know we talked a little bit about the idea of kind of cringing at how online this season is last week but the thing about kind of cringe is that it's a very uncritical response there's something underlying it potentially or there's not um you know it's an instinctive reaction it doesn't necessarily say anything about the text um and i was sort of thinking about this because i i could only remember like one other time one other show that i thought this was the case um where i felt like something was being written to be kind of memed and that was in uh, the second season of big little lies with like the laura dern (laughs) material um and some of the meryl streep stuff where it sort of yeah. felt like the writers were going for like these, you know, these big moments, um, but I, but the on the the complaint there really was not anything specific to sort of online consumption, but it was really about I think the sense that that season didn't have a compelling reason to exist, right? Because there was they had run out of the original story, uh, and uh, these characters felt very disconnected um, from whatever original purpose they had. And that was why these moments felt so sort of isolated and strange and sort of straining for attention. Um, pandering. Yeah. And I don't, you know. Which I don't think this succession <laughs> is doing. But, you know, we could have a whole episode talking about this probably. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> w- w- when we're doing this podcast, I think we're, we're talking to people, obviously, who watch the show closely and watch it carefully. And I think any careful viewing of this show guides you to the conclusion that 
there, I, I cannot think of a moment that people have pointed to when they've made this complaint, you know, that is not backed up by, you know, the research that the writers have done about these characters, which is not generally online research. It's them reading newspapers and books and consulting with journalists and mm -hmm. such. And based on like really strong understandings of where the characters come from, like something that people said, said this about was uh, Ken, uh, was the Ken W.A. rap in season two as a moment that was sort of, you know, generated to be memed or whatever. Uh, but that was also based on sort of real events, right? Things like the MC Rove rap um, that we played in the right. end credits of that episode. And uh, there's also this, you know, in a number of interviews um, where Jeremy Strong has been asked about that, about creating this really funny viral moment, he's reacted uh, to say, like, I took that very seriously because for Ken, that was very serious. That was a serious right. expression of his love for his father. Um, and I, I, I think everything that is funny and expressive about this show is all always comes back to this really strong understanding that it has of who these people are and uh, this theory that the show has about the world. And, you know, w yeah. one thing that's very cringe, <laughs> I think a lot of the time is when very sincere people, you know, kind of like Ken get online, right? <laughs> sincere people have the most cringe relationship uh, with online. And that's a lot of what this, this season kind of plays with. So I just, I don't know, I, do, I wanted to bring that up a little bit just because I, I mainly want to encourage people, if you feel yourself in your sort of online uh, life and your Twitter usage or whatever, affecting your ability to sort of engage <laughs> with and encounter art, please find a way to mediate that for yourself because I mean, I don't. I'm not being facetious yes. when I say that you know, you know, not just this show, but in general, art makes life worth living. And please don't rob yourself of that by just going on the computer too much. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I literally stopped reading any post about this stuff. It it, it just it was interfering with uh, my enjoyment at one at one point, as we kind of talked about during the half episode before. Um, yeah three started but yeah make 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 the right decision if it's if it's interfering then maybe <laughs> my whole thing is is like i think that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of like television as a concept when it's intersects with twitter which is more just like there is inevitably going to be some pandering with any television show that has an audience that is aware of what is working, uh, that they're going to give more of what is working right. to an audience that is actively watching them. That doesn't mean they're writing for memes. Like, that doesn't right. mean they're writing for an out-of-context Twitter account. That means that the writers are aware that Tom and Greg are a good pairing, and right. they're going to put Tom and Greg together uh, sometimes. And what's... To me, like, the clearest evidence of why this show is not uh, playing to the Twitter sect as much as the Twitter sect thinks it is, mm -hmm. is that they have a lot of restraint with this stuff. They won't, they're not doing, like, a Tom and Greg ship moment, like, every episode. They're holding back. Or even Jerry Roman. Yeah, yes. precisely. Like, I was yeah. afraid, I was afraid they were going to, or not afraid, but I kind of wondered if they were going to overstep that this season, and it's been perfect pitch perfect so far people were shipping that people wanted that it 
didn't yeah, even really... in this episode when she establishes those boundaries, right. it, it, it makes sense. Like these writers yep. know their characters. Exactly. It wouldn't make sense if it all of a sudden turned into some like, um, you know, giant, uh, you know, ship. Uh, yeah. It's, I don't know. Brendan said something yesterday just that, you know, people are kind of – you know, have a tendency to maybe project a little bit yeah. um, about, you know, their own discomfort with their online usage or what have you um, when it comes to something like this. And, you know, I think Adam said it in our premiere episode that this show now is watched by so many different types of demographics and people um, that inevitably yes. people are going to recognize things in themselves maybe that, that make them uncomfortable. This is a show that is designed to make people feel kind of uncomfortable. Um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, so whether it's, you know, somebody who works in finance or who really likes, you know, capitalism watching this show and might recognize um, something about their life that makes them uncomfortable, um, it's not, um, you know, it's not the writer's job to uh, to comfort you about this stuff. And, and they are just show, portraying the world as it is. Um, and, and we know that these writers do an excellent job at that. And they, I don't think they ever really overstep. Yeah. What people are reacting to is that it is a show that is, and it's the rare beast of a show that is actually in touch with the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's, it, you know, so many shows think that they are, and so many films think that they're in touch with the finger on the pulse with the zeitgeist. And it's so rare to actually see, uh, a show that you know, you know, both is has their finger on the pulse and has a critical eye towards it. Uh, and to me, it's like the clearest example of, you know, kind of like a wink and a nod to people in the know is, you know, in the when uh, Tom is explaining the whole uh, Nero and I, I forget what it is the Nero and Sporus. Yeah, and and Greg's like, oh, I'm not familiar with that IP. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, there you go. Like, that's all I, that's all. The joke, yeah. Yeah, that's all I need to know that, like, oh, no, you know, you know what pisses people off. Right. You, you know what people are frustrated with. You know what needs to be, you know, taken the piss out of. Like, that's fine. And I'm like, that's, that's, that's not someone who's, like, too online. That's just someone who knows what online is. Yeah. And that's all it is. Yeah. I mean, Gabby mentioned that we were talking about the idea of projection. I definitely do think you know, a lot of the times what happens if is that somebody's watching this show and uh, they hear a funny line and the little part of their brain lights up that says, oh, that would make a funny meme. And they're so insecure about how much they go online that they hate that. And they instantly project that sort of self-loathing back onto the show. And they hate that the show reminds them uh, or makes them think about online, which they, they already feel insecure about. Um, so, mm-hmm. so I, I definitely definitely think that that happens but i also think that there is something i'm quite sympathetic to and something i feel myself this anxiety of watching something good unfold and worrying okay when's it gonna get bad when's it not gonna yeah, when's yeah, it not yeah, gonna yeah, be yeah. as good yeah. as it was right that you yeah. know that's i think that's a very natural thing for people to experience especially those of us who have had really powerful experiences watching and talking about this show you know i mean there's also a dynamic of when's this not going to be cool to talk about anymore <laughs> which i mean i don't know maybe, maybe that moment is already coming gone but we're not really concerned with that on this show um well and online is big on contrarianism 
Yeah, exactly. So you want to be ahead of the curve. Exactly. You want to be ahead of that moment when it becomes right, uncool. Right, where yeah. it's, yeah. But like like you said, it's like whatever I find cringe says more about me than what the right. writers are saying. I, I yeah. do think that if the show is going to shit the bed, it would have done so in season two. Like that's my... Ken, Ken, yeah, Ken famously did belief. shit the bed in, in Turnhaven. You, right, you right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well oh my played. god well played oh my god <laughs> anyway so yeah I, I i just i just wanted to uh to bring that up and uh say that uh i, I i'm i'm actually you know I, I i have some insecurity about being identified with you know succession fandom as it were because you know the concept of fandom i think has been a net negative uh for for oh. for culture and for the way that we talk about uh, in this the way isn't that, fandom. In the way that, in the way that we fandom. make art. I, I know, but being in, even in some way identify with that. But, I mean, you know, uh, there, there are people who would, you know, proudly, I think, situate themselves outside of whatever that is. Um, and then people within that, too, I've been really, um, really pleased with a lot of the time. Impressed. Have really good, like, strong, critical engagement with the show. I think much more so than people who are, you know, cynical about the way it's talked about and received. Um, so, you know, it's not all, it's not all bad. You know, some of the... Right. Yeah. Who were the people who didn't know who Colin was? That's... Oh, you know, uh, well, you know, I mean, people who, uh, pe- people who get paid to do podcasts about prestige TV. We're not that lucky, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, God. Um, so are we moving on to Jerry and Roman? Yeah, I guess, uh, or we are, Jerry? we're, we're, yeah. we're definitely running long here, but I do want to give, uh, Jerry and Roman, uh, their due. We talked about them a little bit in that last segment and yeah, I've been pleased with the way that, you know, Jerry is maintaining kind of boundaries around this sexual relationship with Roman, you know, and people, there was a, there was a piece that, um, uh, my friend Madeline linked me to recently, um, that I guess I'll try to f- dig up and put in the, in the notes of this episode because it was really good, but I can't remember who wrote it now. Uh, but a piece about the, the idea that people want to see the relationship between Jerry and Roman consummated somehow as if the only way to consummate a relationship sexually was to have you know coital sex you know as if they are do not already have a sexual relationship uh that has been that has been consummated and has expressed itself um you know so i i don't see this as something where it's like roman isn't getting what he wants you know jerry uh maintaining boundaries with roman um and you know denying him his impulses for gratification are exactly what he wants <laughs> um so I, I see this as quite i continue to see this as perhaps the most functional relationship that exists on the show Gar- totally. gary's very mm-hmm. canny she's very smart it's possible that she'll bust out some big betrayal of roman someday um but so far i don't think we've seen any evidence of that she's continuing to mentor him in a productive way and he's not really overstepping either in this episode when she tells him that uh that she's dating he kind of gives her shit about it but he doesn't really harass her and it wouldn't fit with Jerry's character for them to have a whole, you know, romantic, like, or literal romantic, you know. For them to, for them to do it. some hot missionary. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah. Yeah. It, it, would, it would cross a line that the show the, doesn't, mm-hmm. yeah, doesn't want to yeah. go there. Um, One thing I really liked about uh, kind of Jerry and Roman, um, uh, scene here at the end is is when she kind of has to spell out for Roman that you know the self interest that's baked in in business 
and and you know in capitalism and that's she says you always have to be thinking how does this advance my personal position and you know it's funny because i feel like uh the other kids do get that on like a very guttural level um and know that and and roman is we've talked about this in a previous episode he's not like more compassionate he's maybe more self-aware but he also is probably less self-obsessed um but anyways i i just i just thought it was interesting that you know she kind of spelled it out so much of season three has been like subtext becoming text Mm-hmm. Um, for me and, and and again her just saying how does this advance my personal position that should be your MO at all time um, I, I, I do think that Brendan's point that this is the most functional relationship on the show is mm-hmm. very important and it's a very it's one of those key irony moments in the show which is that like this unconventional sexual professional relationship is ironically the most stable one out of every heterosexual coupling out of every traditional professional coupling out of every uh engaging engagement in the hierarchy the only one that actually has a level of consistency and stability is roman you know kind of dirtily getting off with jerry on the side while she also is like don't be a fucking idiot like protect your Mm -hmm. ass and and that's the whole that's the whole gambit and i just it's a nice pair of con it's a nice contrast to every other relationship on the show and it's just like you know and it's obvious that i mean it, it, it's not obvious but it, it's it's crucial that the state the most stable relationship on the show is the one that has to be kept secret <laughs> mm. yeah and there's there's a surrogate mother element that i think is important that you know um is is definitely involved there and i think i would say Similarly, um, it's not been, you know, built up or, or written out nearly as much as, as Roman and Jerry, but I do fr- think Frank and Kendall have a similar dynamic. Yeah, I, I like... I'm sorry, Ken and Frank? <laughs> in terms of, like, professional mentorship, I think is what Gabby's, you know, talking about. Yeah. Not in terms like, of romantic gratification. Not rom- no, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. I just wanted to make... I, I, I no, in, like in terms of, like, um, somebody that, that, you know, sort of genuinely looks out for Ken. Um, yeah, be careful, Gabby. You, yeah. may, you may inspire another yeah. fan cam here. Um, but I, I like that uh, I like that Vic talked about uh, you know secrecy this idea of this secret the relationship secret, because yeah. uh, one thing we were talking about regarding this episode was the theme of uh, you know how secrecy functions in this world and the Roman storyline with its allusions to kind of you know NDAs and blackmail and these sort of like buried secrets coming to the fore and then you know, sh- you know Shiv off in her plot line pulling the strings to get Ravenhead to do her bidding to sort of change change media narratives to change the media to change the sort of you know like the culture and tv industry around her to change the reality the water that these characters swim in um and you know aronson his efforts to kind of hush up the scandal uh there's just a lot in this episode about things that you know ordinary people don't get to see sort of these conversations mm-hmm. that we're that ordinary people are not privy to um that are often you know the subject of just sort of imaginations and paranoid fantasies a lot of those surface in this episode um 
is also interesting. I think Kate pointed out earlier that uh, the, um, I don't remember, <laughs> unfortunately, this is not a good look, I don't remember the name of the character, the tattooed man um, whose service is in the office, uh, but this is... We didn't get a name. But this is a rare glimpse of a, as Roman puts it, a normo, right? Somebody who is not, mm-hmm. uh, who is not, who is totally outside of the Roy's world, does not work for them. Right, and who's being impacted negatively from these guys. We know on a macro level they're doing, I mean, how much negative influence on the world they're having. And we've only had rare glimpses of these, like, individual people, Mm -hmm. such as in the pilot, you know, when they through again the same number and roman as well the million dollar kind of like oh if you get a home run you can get a million dollars like everything is a price for them yeah. um but besides those guys and the fly guys who kind of got and and also the also party, the guy also the guy from the uh, parks training sure team, yeah that with roman it, it seems like it's always roman. i like that guy <laughs> that's right yeah people like that guy roman's always um, rubbing elbows Right, and it's always funny to see, and we don't get a lot of it, so, um, yeah, but I just also wanted to say just um, about the whole tattoo face situation, um, it kind of, like, threw me off and, and rung a distant bell, I, I wasn't really sure, and then I, I remembered that in season two, episode seven, Return, Jerry is sort of doing some vetting of Roman, um, and calls him to, to ask him if a couple of these things are true. Like, did you get jerked off by your personal trainer after sessions? Um, and there's also rumors of a face tattoo situation. So little, um, you know, bio detail there that it has been mentioned before. That's really interesting um, because when I first heard that, my inference was that it was Roman who had a face tattoo and had it removed at right. some point. <laughs> <laughs> Not forcing a yeah. face tattoo upon a homeless man yeah yeah so you know succession does fun things like that and um just wanted to point it out to anybody who didn't pick that up yeah another point to your secrecy brendan is the um what frank tells or rather carl tells shiv about the non-disparagement clause um, right that they're trying to work out with stewie and stewie and um sandy and some secret negotiation or deal they're you know they're lining up all these things and and yeah non-disparagement i mean that's all about um you know not telling saying anything negative um again (laughs) privacy keeping it all you know hidden um i thought that was just another example of that absolutely yeah strong uh but yeah. Strong American psycho vibes from uh, the the whole the whole <laughs> tattoo the whole tattoo man storyline and yeah. yeah, Brendan, you said um, tell us you uh, kill a cat. What it was, was the it's like uh, the feed the, the feed ATM, me a stray cat bit or yeah, yeah or like Patrick <laughs> well Patrick Bateman murders a homeless man in American Psycho. This right. Isn't, this isn't quite right. that far. Gabby also pulled out the you know cool it with the anti-Semitic remarks line. Uh, for that's, that's the one scene I have to skip is him with the black homeless guy at the beginning. I can't, yeah. I can't deal. Otherwise, it's hilarious. Yeah, pretty rough. Obviously, very evocative. The idea that somebody's trying to rub off Kendall's initials on his forehead, and you can, and they, it still lingers. We also get the suggestion that Kendall's middle initial is L, perhaps for Logan. Um, I don't think that right. had previously been. Established. I also liked just 
just a little mention of of that Ken's bachelor party. They did an ironic bar crawl on Broken right. Street, like Ugh. so douchey, you know. Ugh. Another just like little glimpse of yeah, the micro stuff that that we don't get a ton of. They're all so repulsive in this episode. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody comes off very They're well all so at all. Repulsive in the big picture. We just get caught. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. The we drama, get up the drama is yeah. just so. The show is so well done that we have empathy for these. Yeah. Fucking when they, yeah, when they let these characters be uh, be comic types, um, they're very strong ones, and yeah, they can really play on that hatefulness <laughs> so well. Yeah, so we're we're running insanely long here. Um, so I just um, I want to, you know, we, we had a couple sort of like miscellaneous points. It was nice to see uh, Carl again, finally getting to eat, uh, wearing a bib. Um, <laughs> we, we we talked about Mark. I loved we, the bib. We bit. talked about oh Mark Ravenhead earlier. Um, uh, we we noted that Josh Aronson seemed to be reading a, a, a recognizable edition of Crime and Punishment, which of course is a favorite of Jeremy Strong. Something he's cited many times as an inspiration for his approach to Kendall's character post the accident at the end of season one. Um, I'm not sure what the significance is meant to be that Aronson himself is reading it. Um, it's a little bit just like, oh, sorry, you caught me reading Dostoevsky in my in my island estate here. Um, <laughs> very, uh, very approachable guy. Uh, but yeah, um, uh, I guess we'll go around. Final thoughts, closing thoughts, any stray lines, favorite moments that we didn't talk about? One from each. Kate, anything that we forgot to talk about? Manifestation, I already Manifest. said it. Manifest. <laughs> Manifested precisely. Yeah. Gabby, anything? Oh, for me, it's the way Logan says uh, Michelle Ann. Michelle Ann. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nice. Yeah, we kind of glossed over it, but I liked the uh, the bit with uh, Logan uh, letting his assistant, Carrie, listen to the president scream at him on the phone oh, yeah. in the plane. Cause ca- <laughs> While he's, like, splayed out, yeah. like, yeah, these, sweaty. so gleeful. <laughs> these, it's great. These members of these entourages, like Jess, have been slowly sort of coming to the fore a bit more this season. And uh, this is definitely the most we've ever seen of Zoe Winters as Logan's assistant, yeah. Carrie. And this is the first, definitely the first sense that we've got of any kind of rapport uh, between them and you know it, it does seem like you get us we get a lot of sense of logan's personal charisma and charm being put to work in this episode and for a second you know you get the sense that sometimes it might be kind of fun or exciting to work for this guy just for a second um <laughs> vikram uh final thoughts anything we want to plug where can folks find your work uh yeah you can um find me on twitter uh at Faux Beat Poet, F-A-U-X-B-E-A-T-P-O-E-T. Uh, I don't have a website like an unprofessional clown, so that's where I have post most of my uh, links, but I'm a regular writer at the AV Club uh, and The Nation, and uh, I have work at uh, Reverse Shot, Vulture, RogerEvert.com, uh, Rolling Stone, uh, anyone that will hire me, I will gladly write for them at this point. I am, uh, I am, uh, I, I've lost all sense of shame. Please hire me if you listen to this and you like my work. Uh, but yeah, no, that's, uh, that's where you can find my stuff and me generally. That's where I live. <laughs> you had a piece in Filmmaker that I really liked about the show and about the direction of the show, right? Can you, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I interviewed, um, uh, I interviewed the production designer. I interviewed uh, Stephen Carter, uh, and uh, very no, cool. Yeah, no, it was super. It was nice. it, it was a uh, uh, it was nice. It was uh, very much. It was funny. It was 
Um, it was kind of a very last minute thing and it, it worked out really well. And, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I have, uh, it's always tough with that stuff because, uh, they're, they're, they're kind of working with stock quotes a lot of the times, but, uh, I think I got some good stuff with them about the yacht at the end of season two, oh. uh, which was very much like just the, the general logistics because it's filmmaker magazine. It's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of like focus on the technical stuff, the logistics of shooting on a yacht like that in which, uh, every single thing is worth more than most episode budgets. Uh, <laughs> there's just a certain amount of, uh, nervousness and a certain amount of, uh, uh, trepidation in, in, in shooting it. And, uh, it was clear that they burst the season's budget basically to, oh, wow. uh, to shoot on that yacht. Uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's a 279 foot charter yacht. Uh, and it was, uh, it's absurd. <laughs> uh, I'm sure we can link to the piece too. Yeah. The we'll definitely yeah, link yeah, to it. Yeah. yeah. I can, I can send it to Brennan if you, uh, if awesome. you guys want to do it. Yeah. 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 100%. It's on, please. it's online now. hundred percent. Yeah. 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 Please folks. Uh, yeah. Read Vikram, read filmmaker, great piece, great writer, always great, uh, to chat. Um, <laughs> oh, thanks buddy. Um, all right. So, uh, yeah, once again, thanks Vikram Murthy. Thanks uh, to Kate and Gabby. Thanks to our producer, Dan Black. Thanks everybody for listening. If you are enjoying the Roycast, we would love it if you would take a few seconds of your day to drop us a rating and a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It's very quick and easy to do. Um, we so appreciate the people who listen and make this passion project of ours worthwhile. We will be back next week. Uh, for the fifth, the midpoint episode of this season of Succession, and we have a guest lined up we are very excited about. It'll be a great episode. Um, we will see everybody then. Until then, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life you were only waiting for this moment to arise Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes and learn to see All your life You were only waiting for this moment to be free